0: finally going to get an answer to what has been happening. We're going to do things a bit differently, though, which is going to make some people very nervous. See, normally I get up and I read the whole chapter and then we talk about it. We're not going to do that today. We're going to read it bit by bit to, to really feel uh, the the climax of this story. What will make some people even more nervous is they'll open up to usually where we have an outline in the bulletins. There's no outline there today. Ham thought I had not done any work this week and hadn't provided a... a no, uh, that's to kind of give us a bit of space to kind of really feel the tension that builds up in this chapter. So we're going to do that this week uh, today. It's going to be a bit different. Um, but I do know there are a number of people uh, that have been holidaying for a bit and they're this, this week they've come back in. At, it's kind of a good time to come back in. Ruth 4, it's the end of the story, you don't have to get through the first three chapters, and so you just get the, the fun stuff, uh, but you don't really understand really what happens in this chapter if you don't understand the few chapters before it. Uh, so I thought it'd be helpful for us to do a bit of a, a brief summary. I was thinking a bit about how to kind of explain Ruth, and I think one way in which we can understand this book is to think about what's happened in, um, in politics this week. Not, not Donald Trump, but the forty-fifth premier of New South Wales, Gladys, how do you say? Berijiklian, I think I got it right. Uh, she's the forty-fifth premier of uh, New South Wales. Uh, she was installed earlier this week, and during one of her first question times, when people were talking about what kind of policies she's going to be uh, putting forward, what's going to be on her agenda, one of the journalists came up and asked her about her family status. So they pointed out that uh, she wasn't married, uh, she didn't have any kids. And they were wondering whether this would put her at a disadvantage, or whether she wouldn't really understand what it meant to be part of a family and and understand the demands of a family, and and maybe that would affect the kind of policies that she would put forward. A few days after, a number of commentators were quite upset with this journalist, because they said that such kind of questioning pointed out to the reality that women were still trying to break out of a stereotype of what it meant uh, to be a woman in the 21st century. See, they were saying that they're still trying to break out this idea that women stay at home, they raise the kids, and it's the men that go off and do all the work. See, in our society, having no husband or no kids sometimes is often a, an advantage. It gives women an opportunity to be independent and self-sufficient. It gives them an opportunity to, to find more engaging work, different career opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have necessarily. But as we compare our society to the the society of ancient israel there are stark contrast see the book of ruth we we learn about not having a husband and not having children is actually a horrible thing a horrible place to be in see husbands they would provide food shelter and comfort children were ways in which they could you could get them to do work for you but they also provided a way for your family line to go forward and so the beginning part of the book of ruth we hear about A tragedy and suffering. Uh, There's death and a famine in the life of Naomi and her family. It means that Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, as widows, their futures are filled with great uncertainty and unpredictability. They don't have husbands to provide for them. They don't have children. That can mean that they have an inheritance to pass on to. So in Ruth 1, there's a real emptiness and bitterness uh, that really sits in the deepest recesses of Naomi's life. Life is horrible. And so the question that we are constantly asking, the question that we've been asking for the last few weeks, is will God do something about it? In Ruth chapter 2 and chapter 3, we kind of get this, this preview, this, this impression that God really does care for these people, these women, these widows, that He will do something amazing for them. Today is the climax. It's a chapter and a day I've been really looking forward to because it's, it's really where the action happens. And so we're wondering, will God bring greater certainty to Ruth's existence as a widow? Will God ultimately restore Naomi, who complains against God and saying she's empty and bitter? Before we get into this passage, why don't I pray and then we'll read this great story together. Father God, we are indeed so thankful for the book of Ruth. We are so thankful because it reminds us that you are a, a faithful, steadfast God who not only says he loves his people, but acts upon that and demonstrates that in the lives of Ruth and Naomi, in our lives as you send Jesus. And so help me speak clearly this morning. Uh, May our minds not be be captivated by the things of this world, but the glorious gospel truths that we see in this wonderful story and the climax that has been building for weeks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles open, it would be great to keep them open in Ruth chapter 4. Um, we're going to read it right now. Ruth chapter 4. We're just going to read the first few verses to give us a taster of what is happening. So Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. And he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi who has come back from Moab is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here in the presence of the elders of my people if you will redeem it do so but he will not tell me so I will know for no one has the right to do it except you and I'm next in line a little bit more context here about Ruth 3 to really help us understand what's happening here between Boaz and this man. See, in Ruth chapter 3, as a redeemer or guardian redeemer, Boaz had promised to marry Ruth, in in many ways to redeem her from her widowhood. He had promised, in many ways, uh, to, to take her out of that existence of unpredictability, of uncertainty, and to give her a hope for the future, but in Ruth chapter 3, we learn of a problem. See, in order to redeem Ruth, there was some kind of legal order in which it was allowed to take place. And he tells us that there is someone else that has, in many ways, the legal right to exercise redemption before me. And so in this chapter, we're, we're trying to find out will this other Redeemer act upon this opportunity to redeem and marry Ruth? And so Boaz, in order to essentially figure out what's going to happen, he heads, where, what do we read, in, to the town gate. Now, you've got to understand, if you went back to Bethlehem um, in these days, the town gate was the place to go if you wanted to track someone down. In many ways, between the fields uh, where people were harvesting and and the homes in which they lived in the city, the town gate was kind of the middle point. Uh, People would go back and forth. And and so, if you wanted to find someone, this was the place to go looking for them. You just have to sit there and watch them. You sit there in the shade, watch them go past until you found the guy. But it's not just an ideal place to look for this mysterious redeemer guy. Now, this place is often a place where legal transactions happen. People would sit around, it's kind of like a marketplace, they'd do some deals. And so this, the town gate, was the place to be if they were to kind of formalize this, this redemption of Ruth. And so it's at the town gates, where, what happens, Boaz sees this redeemer. He says, come over, come over, my friend, sit down here, I've got this seat prepared for you. And then he goes and, and finds elders, right? Gets elders, gathers them. Why do we, Why is he gathering elders? Well, so often... Uh, back in an oral society, uh, there would be other people, witnesses, that would essentially be an informal judicial panel. Uh, they'd ratify any legal obligations or legal transactions that were, were done. And, and so, the stage is set. We've got the Redeemer, we've got uh, our witnesses, and we're going to make a, a deal. And so, Boaz explains the deal that is possibly going to happen. Uh, they have a relative, Naomi. She's come back from Moab, and she's selling a piece of land. And I wonders whether you want to get in on this deal. Uh, what's, what's really happening here? So, you've got to know that Israelite families owned land uh, forever. They weren't allowed to sell it. What they were allowed to do was essentially rent it out, so to speak. So, if you won't remember back to our Leviticus series, they held it in perpetuity, but they were allowed to rent it out to, to gain more money or rental income, if, you, if that makes sense. Um, when the famine had hit in Bethlehem, Elimelech had likely rented out this, this piece of land in order to get some money, and so they had money but they've spent it, and so they, they even though they own this land, they really have no claim to it at this point. But Naomi had this opportunity as the owner of the land to redeem it, in many ways to, to buy it back and, and put it back in her family's control. But see, you need to know that Naomi, well, in this society that is heavily dominated by males, she's a woman with really no legal standing. no purchasing power to, to redeem this land. But even if she could redeem this land, she's also, what, a widow. She's there collecting leftover grain. She has no money in order to, to buy this land back. And so really what she needs is a redeemer, someone in many ways that can act like a guardian angel, swoop in, pay the money for her so that she can have this piece of land, this opportunity to, to essentially re- redeem herself and, and, and enjoy uh, life in Bethlehem by being able to farm, this is, you've got to notice, this is a really, really good deal. Have you ever had a friend come up to you and go, like, I've got a really, really good deal for you? If you've ever had a friend, like, you've got to notice that there are often a few things that you need to be, pay attention to, right? When someone comes up to you and you go, I've got a good deal, you need to go, okay, well, how much is it going to cost me, right? $1 is different to $100, right? So you've got to know the cost, you've got to know the risk, What's the potential that I might lose my whole you know, um, pocket money of $5 or whatever? How, how much people get paid these days? Well, is there a risk that I could lose all my money? And what's the potential for making more money? So these factors, how much is it going to cost me? What's the risk? And what's the potential for making a whole lot of money? See, when Boaz comes up to this redeemer, you've got to know that this is a, it's a bargain. It's a really, really good deal. See, for one, uh, this man can enhance his social standing amongst the community. Have you ever noticed uh, shops or businesses sponsor um, charity organizations so they can put their name up there? Uh, it doesn't cost them much money, but we're supposed to go, wow, you're really nice and charitable and care for the community. And in many ways, to, to redeem this piece of land from Nomi would have, would have really raised up the, the profile of this redeemer. People would go, wow, you're a nice guy. It enhances social standing. But what it also did is it would allow him to make more money. He'd be able to put this piece of land into a likely a larger parcel of lands that he had owned. Uh, the more land you have, the more you can produce, the more money you can make. So it was good to, to make money. I've also got to re- recognize that the risk here was, was quite minimal. Uh, Naomi, who, who owned essentially this land, she was really old. She wasn't going to produce any children. Uh, no one had any heirs uh, that could reclaim this property down the track. And so it's really unlikely that someone's going to kind of swoop in after ten years and say, "Hey, actually, that 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 parcel of land that's related to me, I'm going to I'm going to take that. I'm going to inherit it. This is an awesome deal." And so obviously, what what is when when you have a good deal, what do you say? Verse four, what does he say? "I will redeem it." He like, "Yep, I'm in. All in. Let's 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 do this. Let's make this happen." Now we don't know whether Boaz is a sneaky fellow, uh, but you look at what he says there. He kind of lays it. He goes, "This is an awesome deal." And then he waits for him to say yes, and he goes, now listen to the fine print. What's the fine print? Let's read it. Verse 5, and then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At This, the guardian redeemer said, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. It's a bit of an awkward situation. Uh, you, he's come up with this awesome deal. He says, yep, I, I'm all in. And then he comes up with the fine print. And he's like, oh, really? It's kind of like a two-for-one situation. You, you redeem it and you get the property and uh, the widow. And he's like, nah, I can't do it. And he wants to get out of the deal. He says, no, no, no I don't want it anymore. You, you have it. But why does, he, why does he turn it down? How does, how does Ruth's situation, her, her marriage to him complicate matters. See, we need to, to recognize that any child that Ruth uh, bears to, to, to this man will have claim on inheriting the property that is about to be redeemed. See, this proposal goes from a bargain, you know, deal to something that is extremely costly. See, there's cost involved in, in buying the property, but then there's cost in, in marrying Ruth. You, you now have to another uh, Uh, mouth to feed and and likely she'll have children so you'll have to to raise children up and that's always an expensive task and and especially if this man didn't have uh, children of his own not only would would Ruth's children uh, redeem and inherit the property that he just bought but that child would likely inherit the property that this redeemer already owns in essence there would be no lasting legacy of this man's family anymore this one child would redeem everything or essentially inherit everything Adding Ruth to the, to the mix was horrible. Too high a cost now, too great. And so in order to kind of protect his family's estate, his legacy, his inheritance, he says, no deal, no deal. See, it reminds us that redemption is never cheap. Redemption is always costly. Let's look how expensive it is. Look there, verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Boaz announced to the elders of all the people, today you are my, your witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's wife, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property." so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. You're my witnesses." I'd, I'd love to have been there. I'm not too sure if people carried around spare sandals or whether they had some spray to make their sandals smell less because you can imagine you're walking around in your sandal all day, you take it off to legalize a transaction. Well, what am I going to do with his sandal? I, I don't know, but I don't think that's really the point of what's happening here. See, what happens is this, this potential redeemer takes off his sandal, gives it to Boaz. In many ways, it's a symbolic gesture of, of handing over this opportunity, this, 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 this right uh, to redeem the property of Naomi. He, he formalizes his role as a redeemer then, Boaz does. He, he says to all the people that are kind of gathered around, wondering what was going to happen. This is what I'm about to do. Likely, he was making an oral contract. You know, They didn't have paperwork back then. And so as he spoke, it's likely he was signing away what he was about to do. See, the costliness of what it meant to redeem, we see there in verses 9 to 10. For Boaz, it would cost him money. It would cost him money to acquire all the property of Elimelech and his sons. It would cost him money to marry Ruth and commit then to to raising an heir, to inherit the property that he had just bought. But see, it's not just money, is it? Boaz gives up his legacy, his family's name. Instead of Ruth's child perpetuating his family's name, this child will perpetuate the name of another. This was the reason why the other redeemer didn't want to have anything to do with the deal. He was worried about his own estates, his own family legacy. See, we're reminded that redemption is never easy. It always comes at a great cost. Remember, all throughout this series, we've been saying that the focus really isn't on Ruth. The focus is is on Naomi. I think as we take a step back, we start to see that as God has started to work in her life and to bring her from a point of bitterness to, to fullness, it's always been costly. But that cost has always been borne by someone else. I see Ruth, while she left her homeland, she left everything that was comfortable to her, her traditions, her family, her culture, to follow who? Naomi, to bind herself in loving commitment to her, to follow her and her God. She told selflessly in the, in the Middle East sun, picking up leftover grain in order to support her mother-in-law. Last week, she placed herself in a potentially compromising and risky situation to seek not just her own marriage, but security for their, the Naomi's family's future. You'll look at the life of Boaz. He demonstrates great, great generosity, a great hospitality to Ruth and Naomi, He's so generous that he actually, in a sense, loses money as he takes out sheaves of grain and drops them on the floor for Ruth to pick up. Here, Boaz gives up great wealth, the hope for a legacy, to marry Ruth, and to secure not just Ruth's future, but Naomi's family. See, we don't miss this. Beneath this amazing story of Naomi's kind of reversal from from emptiness and bitterness to, to joy and hope, lies the costly and extravagant sacrifice of others. Because of Ruth and Boaz and what they have done, Naomi's fortune, her future, is reversed. Emptiness becomes filled with joy and hope. Well, we start to move towards the climax of this story, so let's continue in reading. Verse 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel, may you have standing in Epaphatha and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. The elders likely here are essentially confirming this transaction. Likely, it's possible that this blessing, uh, this this hope for for this couple, um, is a generic, something that they, they say all the time to all people. But I think what the author wants us to see in this is it's a foreshadowing something greater that will happen. See, the hope for Ruth is that Uh, The hope for Ruth, a woman that couldn't conceive for 10 years, is that she would be fertile, like the famous wives of Israelite patriarchs, those that had essentially founded the whole nation, that she too would share a special place in Israel's history, like Rachel and Leah. The hope for Boaz, whose redemption cost him so much, who basically gave up his name, that he would have standing and fame throughout the whole region. And the hope for their offspring and their family line is that they would be like Perez. Perez if you look at the Bible, was the son of an outsider woman, a Canaanite woman called Tamar. That even though he was the son of an outsider, he held a really special position in the history of Israel. The elders are hoping that the son of a Moabite outsider, Ruth, would also hold a special position in the history of Israel. See, in this blessing, we're given a foreshadowing of what might come later down the track. For the, This man and woman... Uh, that had given up culture, family traditions, wealth, reputation, social standing, to care for someone in need, for, for those who had chosen uh, to, to love others even at great cost to themselves. We start to see this beautiful truth that those who are empty and give up much are richly blessed by God. And that's what we see here in the next few verses. This is what we've been waiting for, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. Someone came up to me before and says, is Ruth and Boaz going to get married? Well, the answer is here, yes, they do. They're married. But not only are we joyful because they're married, this is a love story that has been brewing. What happens? To the woman that couldn't conceive for 10 years, the Lord intervenes and she conceives a child. See, what we're seeing here is the restoration of Naomi. It's really interesting, if you go back to chapter 1, as these two widows head back into Bethlehem, Naomi says to the women of the town, the Lord's hand is against me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Here the reversal has happened, hasn't it? The women speak to Naomi, and in reference to the guardian redeemer who is Ruth's son, they praise the Lord for restoring Naomi. This is an amazing reversal. The one who is empty and bitter is now full and joyful. This great reversal is highlighted as what, into what they say. Look what they say. They say her grandson or the guardian redeemer will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. See, remember in this book, emptiness is always uh, um, represented by a lack of food and the lack of children or an heir. But in her grandson, Naomi has both, doesn't she? Someone to provide food for her a young person to grow up and toil and work and, and sustain her into her old age, but someone to carry on the family line now so that her life may be renewed. It's amazing. The one who thought she was empty is now made full. But see, don't miss also the remarkable reversal of Ruth. See, know how to, notice how Boaz described Ruth to the Redeemer. He says, this mole-bite woman this widow, both attributes that remind us of the status and the predicament that Ruth has carried basically throughout this whole book. She's a woman without hope and without status or privilege in society, but as she is married to Boaz and given this child, her fate is reversed. She clings not just to Naomi but her God, and in trusting Him, she finds a place of honor amongst others. By the end of the book, she's no longer the outsider, the outcast, the nobody, no, she's considered by many as noble, as worthy. It's really interesting. Uh, this story has been wondering: is there a male that will come and reverse the fortunes of Naomi? But interestingly, it's a female through whom Naomi's fortunes are re- restored. Look there! Look! Look what the women say about Ruth. They say she is better than seven sons. Seven is this image of completion or perfection within the Bible, and so often seven sons is the ideal number of sons to have. Uh, They'll work hard in the field. They'll bring food home. They'll definitely provide some kind of legacy. Hopefully, one out of seven, surely, is going to marry and then produce children. But Ruth here is considered better than the ideal. The women, who in many ways rejected uh, Ruth at the beginning, now accepts her. They praise her. There's this amazing reversal we see here. You would think that this is a great place to end the story. Everything that people didn't have, they now have. But the story continues, so let's continue reading. The Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram, the father of and Minadab the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Simon, Simon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. See, as we read these verses, we're a reminder that Ruth is far more than just an amazing love story. It's far more than just the, the, the redemption of a bitter widow. It is a reminder that God works in the ordinary lives of people, not just to care for them in their suffering, but to achieve a greater purpose than we had even possibly imagined. See, remember the first few words of of the book of Ruth. Ruth 1 verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. See, remember the time of the judges was a, a period of instability, of uncertainty in the life of Israel. There was no leadership. There was no monarchy. Everyone basically did whatever they wanted and that was not a good thing because people often turned away from God. But see, the end of the book of Ruth gives us this amazing path forward. God has been working amidst the different people. To raise up a king and a leader, her son is named Obed, the grandfather of King David of Israel, one of the greatest kings of the nation. So, as we take a step back for a moment, and we think about the book of Ruth, we actually th- realise that that this book really is about names, isn't it? Whose name will hold a place in history? Will Naomi's family name be lost forever, or will it continue? Will Boaz and Obed's name be famous beyond Bethlehem? Remember the prophecies or the blessings of the elders and the women? See, in a book where names are so significant, it's really, really interesting that the first redeemer has no name. Look there at verse 1. What's he called? What's his name? His name is Friend. Um, pretty, pretty generic. Um, if you literally translate uh, the Hebrew for, for friend, it's literally Mr. So-and-so. Imagine that, in Hebrew you read Mr. So-and-so. It's kind of like if you meet someone at church and they say their name is John, and then you go have lunch with people, John's not there, and they go, who'd you talk to? Uh, And you just go, um, that guy, Mr. What's-his-face. That's essentially what we're saying here. It's with Mr. What's-his-face is the other redeemer. Now, it's unlikely that Boaz didn't know the name of this guy. I mean, they're in the the same town, they're in the same clan. How can you conduct a legal legal transaction with Mr. So-and-so? Of course you've got to know this guy's name. See, it's, I think, really interesting that the author has, has removed this man's name and given him a much, ra- much generic name. And the reason is this. We're supposed to see a contrast between these two redeemers. Mr. So-and-so, the redeemer who refused to exercise his rights to redemption so that he could protect his name and his legacy, doesn't even get a mention in this book. But the redeemer, Boaz, who did exercise his rights who displayed steadfast love and kindness, who incurred great cost and was willing to lose his family name. I think it's a name in this book. His name isn't just in this book, it, his fame goes beyond Bethlehem. More than that, he's given a significant place in the history of the nation of Israel and God's salvation story. See, we're supposed to see here that this is how God's economy operates life comes through death, fullness through emptiness. Outsiders are not shunned, but they're welcomed in. And those who act in steadfast love and give up everything are exalted with great honor. And so this book doesn't just point to how God is is working and, and creating a stable monarchy in Israel. No, it's pointing us forward to the greater monarchy, the greater King Jesus, who demonstrates steadfast love, who gives up everything so that those who are empty might find fullness. Those who are lost might be redeemed. Just like Naomi, our lives so often feel empty. There is this longing to be satisfied, this longing to be at rest, that we just can't shake. It's really interesting, I was reading a newspaper article, Uh, some of you may have seen it, it was talking about selective schools in Sydney, and how in order to get into a selective school in Sydney, you need to basically go to full-time tutoring. But not only once you get in, do you need to do full-time tutoring, you need to do full-time tutoring times two to kind of stay in and stay competitive. These people were just talking about how how miserable it is, how out of place they feel when they're getting like 98 and everyone else is getting 99. They're just, there's just this longing to want to belong, to to be part of the crew and just realizing that, that we're empty. There is this longing in our hearts to be satisfied. And we pursue all kinds of things in order to make us feel full entertainment, careers, families, relationships, hobbies, whatever it is. But so often there is a restlessness that we cannot shake. Augustine, a famous church father, famous, he said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. See friends, we were created to be, to be people who know God, who are in relationship with the God of the heavens and the earth. Yet even though we're created for Him, we We live our own lives. We do our own thing. We reject God and and find satisfaction apart from Him any way we can. We refuse His kingship, His lordship, His call to live in a certain way and and think that if we can live our own way, we'll be happy, we'll be satisfied, we'll be at rest. See, friends, this life apart from God only leads to an emptiness and a restlessness. Let's say the God of the Bible, the God of the heavens and the earth is a steadfast and faithful God. He longs to do something about our state of emptiness, about our lack of relationship with Him, to restore us, to redeem us. He sends Jesus. And just like Boaz, Jesus comes to provide redemption at great cost to Himself. That price? His own life, as He's crucified on the cross. On the cross, Jesus demonstrates He's the true Redeemer. Instead of making much of Himself, He freely gives of Himself. He doesn't sacrifice what maybe He can get back one day, whether it's money or his reputation. He sacrifices his own life for God's people. And on the cross, Jesus cries out these chilling words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a cry of a man who experiences everything and yet has nothing. He experiences God, his Father, disowning and deserting him at the moment he most needs him you notice the similarity to the cry of someone in this story? Naomi cries out to God. The God who who she feels has brought her Lord, has made her empty. And so too does Jesus, who cries out to this God. See, we're supposed to see at the cross that Jesus experiences what we should experience. Jesus is our substitute. He experiences emptiness so that we do not have to. At the cross a great exchange occurs. Jesus takes upon our emptiness, a life apart from God, judgment and death, so that we are filled with the glory of heaven. Where our life was empty, a life apart from God, a life destined for judgment, our life now becomes full, a life in relationship with God, no longer outsiders. We're honored as God's children. Our sins have been forgiven. Shame is now replaced with honor, humiliation, replaced by unconditional acceptance and approval emptiness is filled by the overflowing love of God for us see friends we recognize that in Jesus our souls are at rest we are satisfied and so just as as Boaz's sacrifice procured for himself a bride Jesus's sacrifice procures for himself a bride God's people the church it is to his bride that he gives himself Knowing that we have Jesus, we should be people then who live with amazing hope. That amidst circumstances where we feel that God has left us, that we are empty and we have nothing, Jesus' actions demonstrate that God has not given up. He has not left us, that He lives within us. And so our tendency though can be that when we feel empty, we feel God is far, that we seek this world to find sanctuary in it. We feel the things of this world will make us full again. And so we pursue them wholeheartedly. See, the book of Ruth, this chapter is a reminder to us that we need to be people who trust in God. He is our everything. He is our joy and our salvation. We need to be people who live with hope. Hopefulness will look differently for all of us. For some of us, hopefulness is to believe that God is present amidst our suffering and emptiness. An act of faith looks like turning and crying out to God in prayer. From a position of humility, we seek God's comfort and guidance. We seek his wisdom to live in this broken world. But for some of us, though, hopefulness is to believe that Jesus really is enough. Faith looks like not pursuing the pleasures of this world, refusing to to believe the lies of the devil, which says Jesus isn't enough, you need something more. It is to, to reject the alluring temptation of compromise. Faith looks like in moments when you have little left for yourself, little time, little energy, little money, to be generous and charitable, believing that in faith Jesus is our treasure, our security and our provider. Listen to the words of Lamentations. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Lord is good to those who hope is in him, to the ones who seek Him. Let's pray that the, the lessons we have learned in Ruth would stay for us. Stay with us. Let's pray. O oh, Father God, you challenge us this morning to believe that that Jesus plus nothing is everything. Our sinful hearts will often long for something. Apart from jesus remind us as you have reminded us through ruth that you are a god who provides more than just enough you are a good good god it brings those who are empty and makes them full again may we experience the fullness that we have in christ in jesus name we pray amen Uh, what an amazing story of redemption that we've seen in the book of Ruth. We've seen in Boaz the cost of redemption as he's given up his family name and as he's paid for Naomi and for Ruth. And in Naomi's life, we've seen how she's been restored from her emptiness to fullness. We also see how it ultimately all points